What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to discuss the digital revolution and its impact on the sound of music. We'll also review new albums by Moby and Destroyer, and I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Making big news this week with a mega deal. The world's largest rock band, arguably, the Irish Quartet, has just made a deal with the nation's largest concert promoter, Live Nation Artists, to create a mega company. Basically, U2 is handing over all responsibility for its worldwide touring, merchandising, and its website to Live Nation. The only thing that U2 is going to keep separate from Live Nation is its recording deal with Universal Records. That'll stay intact. But it's very similar to the deal that Madonna did last summer with Live Nation, that $120 million deal that everybody's talking about, supposedly going to revolutionize the record industry, where Madonna not only took, uh, turned over her touring to Live Nation, but her record deal. Yeah. Uh, so Live Nation is getting into the uh, record business in a big way. And the fact that it's merging with U2, I see this as a trend that started 10 years ago, Jim, when the record mm-hmm. companies, the multinational corporations started merging. Now we're seeing major rock bands, major artists merging with large corporations and creating these mega entities that will do everything, recordings, tours, T-shirts, merchandising, yeah. and yeah. websites. Well, yeah, 360 deals, they're called, and uh, this one is expected to generate more than a billion dollars from the touring alone. Two bad things about this deal, Greg. Number one, U2 is not being conscious of its fans, I don't believe. U2 is more than big enough that it could have started its own merchandising company and its own company to handle all the elements of touring. The other horrifying thought, this is a 12-year pact, and when it expires, Bono is going to be 60 years old, and the picture of that in my mind was just terrifying. (laughs) Well, look at now. We have the images of McCartney and the Stones and Neil Young all cleaning up on the road, all well into their 60s, so the president has been set. Unfortunately, you could easily see you two cleaning up at the box office 10 years from now. As no! ridiculous as it sounds. No! <laughs> Greg, here's some news about another mega deal. 
The Dave Matthews Band and Ticketmaster, the giant ticket-selling monopoly, have teamed up to offer concertgoers an exclusive digital album comprising material from the uh, group's upcoming 40-city North American summer tour. Every summer there's a 40-city tour by Dave Matthews, right? This summer you will be able to preserve the glorious memory of those 25-minute solos that, that quote, Mary Had a Little Lamb by having this uh, free live album. Everybody who bought a ticket through Ticketmaster is going to get a digital code that allows them to download this album from iTunes. And when I say everybody who bought a ticket from Ticketmaster, that's everybody since they are the only and predominant ticket seller in the U.S. About to change, as we said a couple of weeks ago, when uh, Live Nation splits from Ticketmaster and begins selling its own tickets. But what else can be said except Dave Matthews, Ticketmaster. Are there two more reviled names in music getting into bed together? Is it imaginable? Well, whatever you say about Dave Matthews' music, and I share those sentiments wholeheartedly, this is a band that made its reputation on sort of a grassroots level and building its audience in in the Grateful Dead fashion. Basically one of the most fan-friendly bands in the universe. I mean, they did a great job of sort of building a fan base and extending it through their own inherent company. But now, getting in bed with Ticketmaster, I mean, what does that say about fan friendliness? I mean, you're, you're dealing now with one of the most fan-unfriendly wow. corporations in the history of mankind. Absolutely true. It's sad. And, and, and Dave Matthews should be ashamed of itself because it always has been admirable as a business, not as music. Well, Jim, we're doing a lot of stories this week about the business side of the music industry, and here's a sad one. This this can't help but sadden any true fan of yeah. uh, live concert events. <sighs> Tour sponsorships have grown 75% since 2003. It is now to a billion dollar a year industry. We have the Chicago executive who conducted this study, basically saying how these uh, sponsorships are going through the roof, saying the tide has changed since even the 90s when a lot of bands didn't want to be aligned with corporations. Now, I don't think any band would say no to a sponsorship. The same goes for concert promoters. I think that's a really a sad commentary. I think there are a few bands out there that still resist this sort of thing. Yeah. But you literally cannot step foot into a concert venue these days without being assaulted with all sorts of signage promoting some kind of beer company or some kind of product. And uh, it has taken over the business. It's now gotten to the point where artists can no longer tour, they say, without these sort of sponsorships. What I don't understand, Jim, is why, if these sponsorships are being leveraged so much higher and why they're so much a bigger part of the touring industry, which is now a $2.3 billion a year business, why ticket prices have not come down. Yeah, well, you know, that's the thing. Look, there can be good sponsorships. When a soft drink firm co-sponsors a festival and they're giving out free drinks, that's great, okay? But, but you know, the bands are having to play on stages with this corporate advertising all over it. Last year at Lollapalooza, we saw the downside of that when AT&T's Blue Room was broadcasting Pearl Jam's performance and censored Pearl Jam. This year, Radiohead, which has famously taken a stand against globalization and corporate advertising, is going to have to play on a stage at Lollapalooza with corporation names all over the stage. Yeah. Are they going to do that or are, you know, is somebody finally going to draw the line? It'll be interesting to see what artist has the courage to stand up to this trend. If they're out there, let them speak this summer because it's going to be bigger than ever. Well, 
Life's the same, moving in stereo, the cars sang. But, Greg, is it still the same in 2008? Look, everything is changing. The other day, you and I were reviewing a concert, and I met a fellow who used to own a chain of secondhand CD and vinyl stores throughout Chicago. They had made him very wealthy. He threw in the towel, closed his stores down in 1999 because he saw that, you know, people are just not buying vinyl and CDs to the same degree that they once were. Everything about the business had changed in his lifetime. And he said to me, I never thought I would see so much change in such a short span in my life. Everything has changed. This story we want to do is about how the things we're listening to have changed. Yeah, the way it's being delivered is greatly influencing how we're listening to it, uh, uh, clearly. Uh, you know, a billion CDs were sold in the United States in 2000. 500 million were sold last year. I mean, it's a huge collapse in the CD market. So your friend was absolutely right. The vinyl sales were equally downtrodden, 43% decline from 2006. But in 2007, vinyl sales increased 15 percent. And I think this is what this is showing us, that there is a craving out there for some higher fidelity sound, because what we're getting is a lot of our music on MP3 files. 23 percent of the 1.4 billion pieces of music purchased last year were in the digital realm. And if you factor in the fact that the digital realm is exploding on the peer-to-peer networks around the country, 20 illegal downloads for every legal one in the United States, mm. it's clear that most people in the country are now listening to their music as digital files. Well, you said the words higher fidelity. Does the concept of hi-fi even exist anymore? That's what we wanted to get at with our guests. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons that we sought out uh, Butch Vig, one of the great producers of the last 20 years, a guy who has worked with sound intimately since starting his studio in Wisconsin in the early 80s. He's worked with bands like Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Sonic Youth, and his own band Garbage, obviously. And we asked Butch Vig when he stopped by Sound Opinions a couple of weeks ago how this uh, revolution is impacting the way he works. So, Butch, the idea was that we want to examine this vinyl resurgence, and it's coming back in a big way. Every single aspect last year of the uh, recording industry in terms of music sales was down. CDs, MP3s are not growing at the pace that they thought. The only thing that was up (laughs) was vinyl records. (laughs) Well, I think people still love the sound of vinyl, and uh, it's a medium that is being discovered, I think, by a lot of new fans, you know, not just, you know, people my age who are, are dearly holding on to those vinyl records and praying for some sort of comeback. I think a lot of people are, are starting to realize that the sonic quality is actually better. Can you explain that a little bit to us and not in the uh, the uber techno geek? I mean, we're talking to one of the greatest producers of our generation, obviously. But, I, I you know, sometimes when, when hi-fi people start to talk about why vinyl is superior, us mere mortals, you know, start to just gloss over. But but why does a 12-inch vinyl record sound better than, than a CD or an MP3? I mean, it's hard to uh, sort of give an easy explanation, but it's it's a different medium, and then it's cut from a lacquer, and it's it's goes through uh, analog preamps and, a, and a, a cartridge that picks up the sound. And by the time it gets to your amplifier, it's um you know it comes from sound comes from magnetic waves, and it's just it's a medium that doesn't involve zeros and ones, which is what digital is. And now there's nothing wrong with digital. If you have really good high-end converters, um, you know, if you're sampling at 96K and you have, uh, you know, Apogee in-and-out converters so it sounds, you know, super fantastic, most people at home don't have anything even remotely close to that. And by the time digital audio 
gets to the consumer, it's been compressed and smeared. And you're lucky if you've got a 128 kilobits, you know, MP3, which is pretty crappy sounding. And so it gets very tinny and thin and, and slightly crunchy sounding. And the analog sound of vinyl is so much more open and transparent than the, the sound of digital. And I think if, if consumers still really had a choice, if they could sit down and listen to AMB, they would probably 90% of the time take uh, vinyl. The richness of it, is, there's no doubt there's a depth to the sound field with a record that you can't possibly duplicate with a CD or let alone an MP3 file. But, but Butch, obviously the industry is converting to an entirely digital realm uh, with MP3 files. Uh, more and more music is going to be distributed and heard this way. Is that frustrating to somebody who cares about sound? It is, and uh, the unfortunate thing is I think, I mean, as a producer, I have to be conscious of how the public or a band's fans are going to hear the music. And so sometimes you have to overcompensate or or at least be aware how that medium is going to sound. And, and sometimes it forces you to change you know, how you're actually making the recording or, or more often than not the mix. The mix being the crucial final stage of a recording. In other words, the relationship of the instruments and the voices in, in the field. For an MP3 file, is it going to be a different approach than you would if you knew it was going to be on a pristine, you know, 180-gram uh, vinyl record. The difference sort of in the kind of sonic space you get from a great analog recording and from vinyl is that you hear the sort of 3D characteristics, the reverb, the little tails of echoes, um, the stereo left-right field is all very, very transparent and clear. And the more digitized uh, sound gets, the more compressed and uh, and not even just with the digital realm, but just through compression and, and and the goal of trying to make everything sound louder, you lose a lot of that 3D transparency. And I've started to find over the years that um, I'll listen to something with it, like an echo or some reverb, by the way the drums sound, and then I'll listen to it, you know, a, a mix or that is getting very close to being done. And then I'll listen to it on my computer after it's been turned into an MP3. And uh, you lose a lot of that, and the mix sometimes sounds drier and thinner. Um, the vocals don't have the kind of space, you know, that, that you originally wanted them to sound when you were doing the final mix. And so sometimes you start overcompensating. You know, I'll turn up the reverb or, or I'll, I'll turn up uh, the echoes and things or I'll pan things even wider in the mix than maybe I normally would because it would sound great in analog, but it doesn't on digital. So it's a necessary evil, though. You sort of have to be competitive, you know. You don't want your track to sound... Uh, lower in volume or not sound as bright or aggressive if it's a rock band you know i, I just i've been in the studio working on the subways record and, and just we just finished mastering and um it sounds great it's just super vibrant and and, and rocking and it's got great stereo image and uh, tons of energy and i know it's not gonna you know by the time someone downloads it's gonna start to get crunchy and mm-hmm. squished and over compressed and but that's the nature of the business. Right. So so what we were um, saying is is that with the MP3 becoming the new standard, it's basically like we're 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 mixing for the worst sound possible because that's reality now. Kind of is. Yeah, it's sad. I'm sad to say it, but it kind of is. Uh Butch, could you elaborate a little bit on that that there's this competition or pressure you feel to or producers feel to make records sound louder in order to compete in the marketplace. Who exactly is applying that sort of uh, pressure on producers? Now, I think that kind of pressure creeps into the band and the and the engineer and the mastering engineer and, and the A&R people, everybody, because 
you don't want your track to sound lower in volume or quieter or not as sharp sounding, not you know, not not having as much attack or treble on it. And that's it's it's sort of it's not so much hearing the the record on its own as, as you listen to it all the way through. It's like when you're hearing it back to back on MTV or on the radio or on uh, any place. You know, if you're streaming songs on the internet, you want your track to sound as good and louder and more intense, at least as the artists on either side of what they're hearing. What's the solution, uh, Butch? I mean, where do you see it in ten years? I mean, obviously we're heading towards this this home recording environment where. You know, people aren't going to go to studios anymore. Do you see that turning around ever? And uh, do we see a return at all to uh, high fidelity as being uh, something that people care about? You know, I think there'll always be a small segment of people who still really love and, and are passionate about uh, audiophile sound, you know, and they want to hear it as pristine as possible. I think a lot of young rock bands, they just want to rock out and they, they're they not going to necessarily care, you know, if, you, if you're getting the best absolute possible sound you can get and uh, one of the things that uh, seems to be happening is that um, every time you get a young band that tries to do something new or something sonic that they'll you know they'll be in the studio and they'll say can you make our record sound like this and uh, and they'll put on Led Zeppelin mm. and and those records sound great and uh, and part of it is like well I can try to make it sound like that but Number one, I don't know if, if you're going to want to spend the time or, or, or you know, if we're, we're actually going to be able to dedicate it and, and if you can play as good as them or write songs as good as them. <laughs> uh, that's a whole other subject that I won't go into. It, it's just, it's tough because um, there's a whole generation of young artists and musicians growing up and I don't know that they are really going to understand or care about how good it could sound, you know. And, and even though vinyl is making a comeback, it's still, I think that's going to be something that the industry in general is not necessarily going to want to push. You know, they, they want to, I mean, they don't even know what they're going to push right now. They're obviously struggling to sort of find out what a new business model might be. And uh, I don't know, if, I mean, maybe if we all went back to vinyl, <laughs> that would help in, in some way. But, uh, you know, I just don't see that happening uh, in, to a large degree. I think it's going to stay, it's just going to keep staying in the digital realm. That's going to be the, the format for, I think, quite a few years to come. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to continue our discussion of audio fidelity in the digital age, and then we're also going to rate new albums from Moby and Destroyer.
You are listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. My name is Bruce Lamont. I'm from the Chicago band Yakuza. We're on tour, currently in Austin, Texas this evening, performing at the South by Southwest Music Festival. And I will tell you what, here's what's keeping us alive on the road these days. It is vinyl sales, my friends. Lovely, gorgeous, double gatefold color, limited edition vinyl, 25 bucks a pop. And if we sell, we have a bad show and sell three. That's 75 bucks that we weren't planning on. And we're all audiophile nerds, so like we're way into the whole vinyl thing. So yeah, we were really proud to have our own music on that medium. Bruce Lamont of the Chicago band Yakuza, surviving on vinyl sales, he says, on the road. Greg, two other bands that have uh, kept in mind high fidelity and catered to the audiences who care about sound quality with vinyl releases are Radiohead and Nine Inch Nails, obviously much better known. This is a growing trend. It's not isolated at all. To get some more perspective into the vinyl revival, the concept of high fidelity today, and what the digital sound revolution is doing to that, we talked to our colleague Bob Gendron, who, as the editor of a Hi-Fi magazine, has to worry about sound quality while we merely worry about the quality of the songwriting and the performance. We want to welcome Bob Gendron to the show. Bob is the music editor of Absolute Sound, a magazine that specializes in fidelity issues. He's also a music writer for the Chicago Tribune. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks. The tension in the marketplace right now, I think, is between this whole issue of convenience and portability versus fidelity. You're not going to get all three, usually. So how is that ever going to be resolved? Do you see a point where you're going to be able to get high-quality, 180-gram vinyl sound with the portability and the convenience. I mean, I think if you spent the time and bought enough uh, extra hard drive space, you can do all that Apple lossless compression because that's uh, that's basically equivalent to a real CD sound. When you bring up the vinyl thing, I mean, there's a bunch of people out there who will always believe, and I guess I kind of am on the side of the fence as well, is that, you know, the vinyl sounds the best. And you're not going to really get that from a CD because it's just like the, the entire playback medium and the warmth and the soundstage and all that stuff. Now, can you explain to us why that is in English, Bob? We were hoping to have you on because Greg and I, I think the only time, Greg, that as journalists we're daunted is when recording engineer types sit in front of us <laughs> and start to go into the, you know, and it's just like, uh, I mean, we'd have to go to engineering school. We don't have time. We're too busy reporting. But you work at this Hi-Fi magazine. Mm-hmm. Why? What is the the crux of that argument that vinyl will always sound better than digital? Um, it's just again, it, it comes down to like the entire the way the things are processed, and with the vinyl record, you're having a needle in the grooves. Just the reproduction of that sound is a lot more fuller, richer, and warmer than the CD sound. It must have been Moonglow, way up in the blue. It must have been Moonglow. That led me straight to you. One thing that happened with CDs, I mean, they all because it's digital, it does involve a level of compression, and the uh, playback mechanisms for that stuff usually aren't uh, is, is is optimal. In addition, the early stages of CDs were all horrible because they were all actually mastered wrong, and everything's like in ones and zeros, like these binary codes that I don't even understand. But what I can say is that. The binary codes on the early CDs were were improperly done, so that's why you have, you know, Elvis Costello, for one of many reasons, releasing, like, the 17th remaster of My Aim is True now. She 
early CDs, if you if you went and played um, a CD that came out in 1989 that's been recently remastered, you'll definitely hear a difference on it. And mastering is what? Mastering is sort of like the final step in a record, and it's also become like most controversial in that everything's kind of taken down to like two tracks and like mastering is literally the process where the the record and the recording becomes ready for replication and basically put onto a disc or vinyl or whatever what might have you what's been going on lately is that in this eternal war to catch the the very little radio time that's now available the mastering engineers have been putting on more compression which makes the recording louder when you play it back it's louder and more in your face but what's happening is like all the nuances and all the production works kind of getting lost in translation. It's it's basically a flattening process, right? Where the sound is sort of pushed, to- everything is pushed towards the middle, mm-hmm. and the extremes at the high end and the low end are basically chopped off. That's what we're talking about, right? Here, right? right. I mean, I actually I think one analogy I'd use, like maybe most common people would understand, is if you kind of look at what's going on with steroids. I kind of look at seeing what's <laughs> going on with that. It's the same thing because it's like it's boosting you up, but it's uh. It's completely taken away from the fundamentals and stuff. So, so now that people are uh, uh, MP3s are, are starting to be the main mode of delivery in the music business, how is mastering changing? I mean, people would master for one way for vinyl, for another for CD. What is this new uh, shift doing? Um, I mean, it's still mastered all the same. It's just again, it's just kind of like this whole loudness thing, which is being emphasized. And I think also just the entire art of engineering and, and production is kind of. You you can argue that you don't need it anymore because basement recording is such a reality now. I mean, recent guest, if you guys, Bob Mould, I mean, he basically did that entire record mm-hmm. in, in his house. I say to you, secrets that I held so dear, I'm putting all my emotions on display. What I say to you, well, maybe it's that time of year. Would you like to see my it doesn't sound bad, you know, and he had somebody else master it, of course, but the the technology has advanced so much that you don't need these big studios anymore. And so it's the, the whole the whole kind of dynamics changing in terms of what's being utilized. So you're saying that it's very difficult now, it's becoming more difficult to tell the difference between the guy who recorded the album in his bedroom on essentially $10,000 worth of recording equipment, sometimes less it's going to sound basically the same as, as a recording that is done like in a big studio like Ocean Way in, in uh, Los Angeles? No, it'll, it'll sound different, but I'm just saying that the, um, there's not as much of a uh, demand to do that anymore because, number one, the labels don't have the money, and number two, the public's kind of decided that they want the convenience and the portability over uh, the hi-fi sound. Well, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I'll take the sound of White Light, White Heat by the Velvet Underground over the sound of, like, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors any day, <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't think money is the key. I want to get back to what you were saying about th- that, that needle in the groove, Bob. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you sure now? Are you sure that you're not just romanticizing this? The notion of, you know, you take the needle, you put it down, it goes through the grooves, and the little bumps in the vinyl make the music versus this little laser we don't get to see because it's behind the draw of the CD. You know, you just slip the disc in, whatever, right? Or whatever the heck. I mean, there's not even a laser in an iPod, right? Are you, you're not just romanticizing this? No, I'm not. I mean, because uh, quite honestly, I mean, playing records is kind of a pain. I mean, it's it, it involves more work. It involves more, you know, hands-on stuff. And yeah, you have to get up every like 25 minutes and flip the side. But that's not bad. You get another beer. Yeah, and then when you have the gay fault sleeve, you can you could roll a homemade yeah, exactly. Cigarette. That that's all that's all part of the fun experience. However, the thing is, honestly, though, there's just a there's such a big difference in terms of just the dimensions of the recording. I mean, again, if you go to the 
if you go to In Rainbows as an example, I mean, you can hear it on that. If you go to uh, to another band like you know that really values the sound quality, honestly, is Wilco. I mean, their stuff on vinyl sounds tremendously better than it sounds on CD. It's just like a total tonal and dynamic range difference. It, it's interesting because I think uh, Reznor, with his latest idea with uh, the Ghosts four-volume set, is really on to the right idea here, where he's presenting it at all these different levels. So if you just want the download, you can get that. But if you want to shell out the bucks for the pristine vinyl version of it, you can get that as well. You're going to have to pay for it, but it's out there. It's available. And I think that's the key here is the choices. If you're an audiophile, getting the vinyl is definitely going to be worth it for you. Yeah, I mean, the vinyl thing is probably worth it for I mean, I think the Radiohead thing proved that, too, with the disc boxes. I mean, they won't release numbers, but obviously, you know, they sold a, a boatload of those for 100 bucks, basically, a pop. And um, the record industry tried like mad to actually kill vinyl with the, the total advent of CD and the, the dreaded cassette tape, and it's still around. And, I mean, it's never going to be a major format, and it probably shouldn't be, but I think it's proved that it's not going to go away. I mean, the indie labels have never really given up on it. I mean, you know, like uh, Sub Pop and Anti, they still do a lot of vinyl stuff. There's artists that insist that, it's, that they have their records pressed on vinyl. What about the future of digital, Bob? I mean, we've had so many advances in such a short period of time. All of them, as Greg said earlier, based on, on uh, portability. You know, I want to have as much music as possible in as small a container as possible. Is there a digital high-fidelity format that's coming down the road in 10 years? Uh, quite honestly, given what's going on with the cell phones and, and given what's available with like the I, iTunes, I don't know how digital could advance more in terms of being more portable. I think any advancement's going to have to uh, take into account the portability factor because I think people have made the choice and that you know they're they're going to trade the convenience factor for sound. It seems like to me the next dimension is this whole tie-in with the the, the video aspect of it, and you know obviously it is going to be on your cell phone. The cell phone will be the be all and end all. That, to me, is the end of high fidelity right there. I mean, I, I just don't think there's any way you can get the satisfaction out of that sound coming out of that little device in your hand that, that you're going to get out of a you know a $5,000 stereo system. I'm yeah. sorry. That's never going to happen. No, it's it's not. I mean, again, the video thing, I think it just kind of shifts the priorities. I mean, in terms of, you know, you look at the, the labels now and they kind of have the ringtone department. And I think, again, that's... That kind of says it all right there in terms of, like, where things are going. And, and obviously, you know, it seems to me like uh, the recording studios are going to be history very soon if this continues. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple that have already gone. I mean, and if you look at something like Ardent Studios in Memphis, which I consider one of the, the top-notch ones that still is around, you know, with John Hampton and people down there. I mean, the White Stripes are sort of like one of the last, like, analog purists they made get behind me Satan down there. But um, I think if you talk to anybody, any producer or engineer in the industry, they admit that times are tough. There's no question. It's too expensive. What a lot of the big studios are being used for now is just to do the drums because you can't really do that so much in the home studio, but the rest you can do in a home studio without a problem. And which is as it should be. <laughs> Give yeah. the drummer some. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Bob. We appreciate it. Bob Gendron, the music editor with Absolute Sound, has been our guest on Sound Opinions. Thanks, Bob, for coming in. Thank you very much. You are listening to Sound Opinions.
Greg, that is an interesting merger of house and hip-hop, a song called I Love to Move in Here, from the new album by Moby, Last Night, the eighth proper album of Moby's career. Moby, of course, is the famously bald, vegan, 42-year-old New York musician who uh, is in a rare and rarefied club with the likes of Fleetwood Mac, Circa Rumors, Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd, or Michael Jackson Thriller, in having had one of the most mega-selling albums of all time and then being cursed to not die instantly. How do you follow that up? (laughs) Play in 1999 sold more than 10 million copies worldwide. It's ridiculous. It was atypical for Moby because he came out of the techno underground as a dance DJ and, you know, made this pop record later on and has been trying to follow it up ever since. Two more song-oriented albums in 2002 and 2005 with 18 and Hotel. Now he's going back to his roots, literally. This is a night-long tour, this album, through New York Clubland with all the myriad diverse styles that are happening today and the stuff that came from the past. I think of it as the oral equivalent of Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Remember that cult movie? Sure, yeah. You know, this one crazy night through the <laughs> New York underground in Moby's eyes, hitting on all those different styles. And many people will be glad to hear this, although I'm not one of them. Moby doesn't sing. Uh, so, so there are a lot of guests coming in. Grandmaster Kaz, who uh, famously was part of Rapper's Delight, uh, an Algerian vocalist, uh, another woman who's a dead ringer for Taylor Dane. It's an interesting record. Let's play a little of it, and then we'll give our opinions and rate it on the patented buy it, burn it, trash it scale. This is a song called Disco Lies from Moby's Last Night on Sound Opinions. Disco Lies from Moby on Sound Opinions. The new album is called Last Night. Jim, as you said, a tour through the underground, the underbelly of Mm. New York City, the world's most vibrant 24-hour city, and uh, what a dancing it's had. 
Moby started out in punk bands, but was uh, you know frequent denizen of these clubs, beginning about the mid '80s. Became fascinated with the art of DJing, uh, primarily because he was in the backyard of Larry Levon, uh, one of the uh, progenitors of house music at the Paradise Garage and later the Ministry of Sound in New York. I mean, two classic dance clubs where Frankie Knuckles also cut his teeth yeah, and then came Chicago. to Chicago and started doing the warehouse over here. And as a, as a person myself who was enamored with punk and, and started going to the warehouse in the early 80s just to check out what all this buzz was about in the underground, I have to say that there's a democracy about the dance floor that's, that's fascinating. I mean, everybody looks great under a neon <laughs> disco ball with a strobe light bouncing off it. You just sort of melt into that darkness and sink into this plush room full of sound. And a lot of people think about uh, disco as this soulless, mechanized thing. I don't think it's that way at all. I think when it's done right and done well, as it was with Frankie Knuckles and Larry Levon, there's this wave of emotion that mm-hmm. rides over those mechanized beats that, that is incredibly uplifting. And I think Moby recognizes the drama in that. He brings sort of a spiritual aspect to it Absolutely. as well. There's a hymn-like quality to his melodies. He, he brings in those little minor key elements that were used so beautifully on play, now coming into play with this particular record and his his conception of disco. So between the beautiful melodies that he uses, that welling emotion, and just a feel for those beats, I think this is a terrific beginning-to-end record that starts out building, surges in the middle, then drops out for the chill-out you know, yeah. at the end of the dawn hours. I would say the only, the only weak spot on this album is a song called Degenerates, um, which, which sort of flattens the album out at about the three-quarters of the point. But otherwise, I think there's a beautiful, seamless program of dance music, and I think it's a terrific achievement for Moby. It goes back to uh, his early solo records, yeah. back, to, back to his days as sort of a fledgling techno artist. Well, look, it is not cool, and, in, and it never has been cool to say that you love Moby, but I will not apologize for that. Like I said, I even like when he sings. You know, he's never tried to be cool. He, yeah. He's never been anything other than the, the bald geek pursuing his own muse, and it's taking him in, in strange places, sometimes the underground dance world, sometimes the pop world, sometimes thrash metal, right? I, I admire the guy, and I think that, that he has, you know, the secret to his appeal is that unerring old school ear for melody. And when I say old school, I mean really old school. I mean like Mozart, Bach old school. <laughs> you know, he has this, this, this ear for complicated melody and the emotions that it can well up in you, and, and you hit that on the head, absolutely. I think that last night, Moby's new album is a buy-it record, absolutely. Jim, I hate to say it, but you're absolutely right. If you have a question or a comment about Moby or our discussion of Fidelity, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. If you want to learn more about anything we say on the show, check out our footnotes at soundopinions.org. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new Destroyer album, and then it's my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox.
go well tonight So let's linger here This used to be my favorite palm tree I was starving in that dish house the world But now it's gone And the whole point of everything's the moving on Well let's see a calm and a storm And okay a star's born Now let me just sit here and eat these almonds On three and four and Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to a little bit of Destroyer, his eighth studio album, Trouble in Dreams, a track called My Favorite Year. Destroyer is essentially a one-man band, a Vancouver-based artist named Dan Behar, who uh, began Destroyer as a bedroom project in the early 90s, and it evolved into a full-on band. He started releasing albums in 1996, but it wasn't until Destroyer's Rubies, the album he put out in 2006, where the recognition really started to spread. Uh, The blogosphere was all over his music at that point. He ended up becoming one of the headliners at the Pitchfork Music Festival in Chicago that summer. And ever since, this press-shy guy has sort of been a focal point as one of the key songwriters in the indie underground. Uh, Also, he's probably perhaps best known for moonlighting in a band called New Pornographers, which have been guests on the show. Behar contributes a handful of songs to every New Pornographers album, and he's always kind of coming out of left field with, with his touch on pop music. Last year on the New Pornographers album, Challengers, he contributed what I thought was the best song on that album called Myriad Harbor, and that's perhaps where people know him best. But now with uh, Trouble in Dreams, his eighth studio record, it's apparent that this guy has risen to a level of where everybody in the indie rock community is looking at him as sort of the new songwriting quote-unquote genius, much in the same way that I think that Robert Pollard uh, was celebrated in the early mid-'90s as sort of the emerging new voice in the indie underground with uh, Guided by Voices. So let's give a listen to the new Destroyer album, Trouble in Dreams, and a track called Dark Leaves Form a Thread on Sound Opinions. Suzanne, the truth is Sipping sherry branded by moonlight's just a game people are playing tonight Seriously, terror advances Perfectly at home with this drag. Dark leaves form a thread. 
Dark Leaves Form a Thread from Destroyer's new album, Trouble in Dreams. Greg, I think if we were looking for a band that epitomizes all of the very worst indie rock traits of this point in time, fey-affected vocals, orchestral filigree that's trying to mask melodic deficiencies, pointless complexity, but at the same time, faux simplicity, and worst of all, those wannabe Ivy League lit professor lyrics, (laughs) we would be hard-pressed to find a better candidate than Dan Behar and Destroyer. This band bugs the heck out of me. You know, Mellotron's chirp, Ebo guitars imitate sawing cellos. Those wispy vocals go la 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 la, okay? And the whole thing just topples under its own weight. Behar wants to be making Brian Eno pop albums, right? But he's coming off like an indie rock version of Air Supply. I hate this record. Trash it six times. I know you also hate uh, David Bowie, especially in his theatrical early 70s phase. Before he made Ziggy Stardust, he was making some really flamboyant theatrical cabaret-type records. Yeah, but he's chasing the gnomes, too. And and he was singing in that sort of affected crooner voice. He was sounding more like Bing Crosby uh, or Frank Sinatra than a rock singer. He wanted to be Anthony Newley. And I think uh, Behar is heavily influenced by Bowie. There's no doubt about it. His songs are elaborate puzzle pieces. He, He talks in these kind of cryptic phrases. A woman by any other name is not a woman. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Maybe not in seconds flat. Maybe not today. Yeah. And you I just know. go, okay, we just went around and around in circles there, didn't we? You really didn't nothing. Say, didn't say You're much wasting of anything. my time, dude. And I have to say, I, th- I like Behar and Destroyer in small doses. I think when he's appearing on those uh, new pornographer records, he adds a nice little left field element that goes over well in small doses. Large doses of Behar is a lot to swallow, though. I can't endorse this album completely. I think there's about a half dozen tracks here that I think are really inventive. I think the key to it is trouble in dreams. These are like puzzle piece dreams. They're nonlinear. They're drawing from all over the place. There are some moments where it really coalesces, and there's some beautiful melodies wafting through it. But a lot of it is very self-indulgent. And I have to tell you, that voice is a love-it-or-leave-it proposition. He's, he's tough to swallow sometimes, but I think there's a few gems buried in all the self-indulgence, and I'm going to give it a burn it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as we can, one of us likes to take a trip to the Desert Island Jukebox and select a record we cannot live without. And this week, it is Jim's turn. Well, Greg, I was thinking I had to play a song that epitomized uh, high fidelity in this show and, and the joys of losing yourself in a recording that is so amazing it creates a world all its own in that space between the headphones. I wanted to choose a headphone classic because, let's face it, neither you or I, when we were teenagers and falling in love with music, we didn't have the $10,000 stereo, you know? But if you got a really good pair of headphones, you invested your money in those, and you had a halfway decent receiver with an okay preamp, you could lose yourself in the headphones and have really good sound, right? Right. I mean, you know, maybe you couldn't afford the $5,000 speakers, but you could 
would have those headphones. And there were three bands that were my holy triumvirate, Greg, in that headphone listening, laying in the basement, lava lamp on, all the other lights off, kind of world of 13-year-old Jim. I was, and I've said this before, a progressive rock geek. You may not know that if you've only heard the last two episodes because I just rained all over Destroyer's Parade and last week I slammed the raconteurs for wanting to make Tales from Topographic Oceans by Yes, okay? That is not good art rock. Art rock's a fine, fine line to tread. You know, it is so easy to get lost in the bombast of clouds of mellotrons and orchestras. But when it's good, nothing is better for that headphone trip to another world. There were three bands, like I said, that were my godheads. Pink Floyd, Genesis, done them both as Desert Island jukeboxes, (laughs) and Yes. I'm going to play a track by Yes that came at its key moment. It's when Yes really became a great band. The original organ player, Tony Kay, had just left, and they were looking for a keyboardist who could match in virtuosity what Steve Howe was doing on guitar. They found Rick Wakeman, one of the most preposterous characters in the history of rock and roll. He's wearing a cape. He's (laughs) drinking 17 bottles of beer at a time, and he's playing 73 keyboards, right? While he's writing a novel, probably, on the side. And there was a song that they did that uh, that introduced him uh, in the studio. It didn't ever make a Yes album. It was their cover of Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel's America. Now, as a 13-year-old boy listening in the dark on headphones after being fueled by half a bottle of Reuniti wine, right, <laughs> usually with a friend because you'd have those Y splitters on the headphones so you could each have a pair of headphones. You'd lay there on the beanbag, right, and, and, and ponder as a kid in Jersey City what the heck they were talking about in that line when they were talking about, like, getting lost on the New Jersey turn. I mean, that was, I saw God in Yes's cover of America. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortune together. I've got some real estate here.
a mere fraction of the 10-minute glory that is Yes's cover of America, Greg. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, I'm still pondering what Paul Simon might have made of that version of his song. Yeah. I'm, I'm putting my cape on now, as a matter of fact. Next week, Jim, we have a terrific artist, one of our favorites on this show, Tim Fight, who merges folk music and hip-hop. We've got some thank yous to say, Greg. As always, the Ace production team behind Sound Opinions is Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and our intern, Dave Mahler. With, of course, our executive producer and fearless leader being Tori Southside Malatia, a man for whom High Fidelity is the Fisher-Price record player, but we love him anyway. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Matt from Washington, D.C. Um, just wanted to comment and uh, tell you how excited I was to hear the marked men finally getting some praise both from Jim and Gerard of Matador. As a listener who usually can't wait to listen to see how you guys have infuriated me week after week, it was nice to regain some of my faith in the show by hearing a great band who has been off of just about everyone else's radar that I know and get some recognition. So thanks for that, guys. Bye. Hi guys, this is Alan calling from Los Angeles. Oh my God, guys, as an REM fan, I remember when A Million was the song you begged your college radio DJ to play. It was U2 and it was REM and it was 1982 and it was just the greatest time. when R.E.M. became the band that made it to the next level and became huge. Listening to your review, i got to tell you, I was disappointed because I think you missed the most important part of the catalog. You didn't name the bad album. Up, Reveal, and Around the Sun. And people need to go and look at those albums. and need to listen to those albums. It's because the heart of R.E.M. was Bill Berry, apparently. And when he left, this band became subject to these other three egos, and it was a horrible, horrible decade for them. Now they're just irrelevant. I just don't care. And it's sad to say that. Keep it up and get on the station out here in Los Angeles. Hey, what's up? This is Paul Stone calling from Town. Town. I uh, just got done listening to your South by Southwest podcast, which was especially exciting as I was down there in Austin, actually at that Lizona Rosa Yesayer show and had my own sound opinions sightings. Spotted both Jim and Greg, which was which was uh, quite a treat. I thought that the uh, matching mesh tank tops were uh, especially nice touch. 
And I couldn't agree with you guys more. I think uh, Yesayer was fantastic. Probably one of the best things I saw while I was down there. I was, I've been a pretty big fan of the album for a while, but uh, seeing them live was quite quite a feat. And I also thought your guys' dance moves to Simeon Mobile Disco afterwards were really impressive. Some of those kind of jumps and kicks and things you're doing. I've never seen anything quite like that. With the Rack and Tours, he banded together with Brendan Benson. And what this is, is what Yes did on uh, Topographic Oceans. This is a bad art rock record. I mean, some of the most incredible, beautiful, Brahmsian, sweeping melodies run through that record. It's iconic. If you take out uh, Anderson's lyrics, trace the parallels between spiritual and physical evolution and Wakeman's keyboard washes and, and the beautiful guitar solos and come on guys you're my heroes go back and listen to it again i'm begging you thanks but i still love you no more messages to give us your opinion on sound opinions call our hotline 1-888-859-1800 we'll be back next week with sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media